Our scripture this morning is from 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, verses 18 to 25. This is from a letter that Paul wrote to the believers in Corinth. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. This is the word of the Lord. I wonder if any of you um, are annoyed like I am with telephone conversations by your spouse where you can't hear the other part of the conversation. Does, does that bother you? I mean, I'm not suspicious. I just want to know what's going on. Um, and so routinely, I have to admit, especially when my wife gets a call or makes a call to her family and she begins to talk, I just go to the basement because it's so bothersome to me Everything she's saying, I want to know something else about, so I might interrupt or give her a look, like, what's that? And she can't continue the conversation, so it's just fruitless. I go to the basement. Um, if it's my daughter or my son, I just, I'm a little more demanding. I just say, put it on speakerphone so we can talk together. I say that to uh, make a point about First and Second Corinthians and really any other letter. A letter from Paul is a little bit like a one-way telephone conversation. You only hear one side. We don't know for sure what all the background is that Paul's speaking into. We do our best to understand it from the context. We do our best to understand it from other books in the New Testament, maybe the book of Acts. We do our best to understand it by digging into the culture, even archaeology. We do our best to understand it by looking at letters that were written that inform us about this particular book and this section of Scripture because some of the early church fathers spoke about books in the context and gave us information that we wouldn't otherwise have. 
But we're always on this, this path of self-discovery to try to hear the other side of the conversation in order to hear as much of the depth of truth as we can. So, as we, like last week, explore one book and one sermon, this week, really two books, The Church at Corinth, we have lots of big gaps and it's like a one-way telephone conversation. So I say that to alert you to the fact that you're going to have a lot of questions if you read 1 Corinthians and 2nd, and especially if you listen uh, to this sermon. But in order to try to get a little bit of the other side of the conversation going, I, I want to introduce you to the place where Paul was writing this epistle, this place called Corinth. Um, there's a map right there of Corinth. And uh, you see that there's an isthmus there that goes, it's, it's a, a small segment of land between two great seas, the Aegean Sea, and then on up from there you would sail to Rome, or even if you were going to go to the left, you'd sail to Spain. That isthmus right there is only four miles wide at its most narrow point. Now, Corinth was a place that had experienced tremendous wealth because of this small isthmus. I think the next slide shows you why. You can see that's, I I put that up there because I just love it. It's a satellite image of today. You can see the big sea on either side of it and this small narrow strip of land. And then I believe the next slide shows you what you would have to do if you wanted to go all the way to Rome or anywhere to the north. In order to get there, you'd have to, to sail around this thing this great big peninsula that stuck out and it was called the Cape of Malaya or perhaps pronounced a different way. The Cape of Malaya was a cape you'd want to avoid if you were a sailor because the waters were treacherous, the open sea for whatever reason attracted a lot of storms. There were sayings about that cape uh, in ancient um, times that said, let him who sails around Malaya forget his home. You know, just forget your home because you may never come back. Another saying that came from this section of the country in uh, the ancient times was, let him who sails around Malaya first write his will, right? So nobody wanted to sail around Malaya if they could avoid it. That's why Corinth became so important. Because this four-mile isthmus that you can see even here on this map was a strategic place to cross from one side to the other. If you were a smaller ship, they actually had what you might call boat trailers. The ship would come to the harbor and the boat trailer would go down and you would move your ship up onto the trailer and they would take you across the four-mile isthmus to the other side. Um, Kill that slide for now. I don't want to see that yet. The four-mile isthmus you would, you would take across and the boat would literally be on a trailer. Now, if it was an extremely large vessel, and there were plenty of those, they actually had contracts, these sailing companies had contracts, and one ship would come up from the south, on the south side of Corinth, and they would unload all their goods from large ships onto transport vehicles, and for four miles they would transport it over to the other side of the isthmus, and there a ship probably owned by the same company would take the goods and sail them north. They did anything they could 
to keep from sailing around that cape. So you can imagine why Corinth is such a strategic location. You could also imagine why Corinth not only was wealthy, but also had lots of issues in it. People passed through there with great regularity, and um, there was, well, a lot of licentiousness, to use an old word. Now, uh, today, this is the next slide, uh, about 1892, which is not important to Corinth in the ancient world, they dug a canal. So you can see this canal right here connects the north and the south part of that isthmus now. And big ships are, are pulled through with a tugboat. You can see how gigantic the sides of the cliffs are uh, that they had to hew this out of the rock. Actually, a Roman emperor attempted to create such a canal uh, just past the first century around in there, but was unsuccessful. That's why Corinth was so hugely important to the ancient world. Now, as a result of that, lots of things happened at Corinth. Um, they actually had a thing called the Isthmus Games, which were uh, games that were second only to the Olympic Games. They might be a forerunner to the Olympic Games, and they happened at Corinth. And for that reason, they had an 18,000-seat auditorium, outdoor arena, for these games. There was also a temple there, uh, more than one temple, but one in particular that seems to catch our attention, especially as it relates to the biblical text, a temple dedicated to Aphrodite, the goddess of love, which, of course, was not so much about love as it was sexuality. In this temple, uh, there are conjectures concerning how many temple prostitutes were available on any given evening. Some say there may have been as many as a thousand temple prostitutes at one time in the ancient city of Corinth. And of course, the ancient city of Corinth has a, a history that precedes Jesus Christ and goes after Jesus Christ as well. So it has quite a gap um, and it wasn't always Rome. But at this time, Corinth was uh, part of Rome and, of course, Rome used it to its own benefit. Now, having set that side of the phone conversation up, let me try to set up the other side of the phone conversation. You're listening to Paul, and you're wondering, what's this church like? And here's what you receive from Paul. You receive word of a troubled church. This place was a mess. Now, for those of you who have been to seminary, you know the stories, they're, they're horror stories of young pastors' first churches, right? Where they give you this church or that church, and they give you this church with all the problems. So suppose uh, someone, if you were a part of a denomination, said, we've got a great church for you, young pastor, but let me tell you a little bit about it. Uh, here's some of the things that are going on at the church. There's some powerful business people in the church who actually have, with their money and with their independent thinking, created significant divisions in the church. So what was probably once church are multiple churches in Corinth. Um, one of the leaders uh, has an affair going on, an ongoing affair, with his mother or his mother-in-law. We're not sure exactly which way, but it's something that's terrible, we know, but we think you can handle it. Um, but one more thing about that affair. The church itself is actually rejoicing in the affair. And instead of condemning the sin, they're saying, 
we have freedom in Christ. Isn't this wonderful? You can do whatever you want. We think you can handle this church. Also, people are suing one another in this church. Just back and forth and back and forth. It's not just church fights. It's suits in the courtroom, in the secular courts. Uh, Furthermore, there's people in the church who are routinely visiting prostitutes. You know, there's a lot of those in Corinth. We think you can handle that too. And some people are reacting to prostitution this way. They're saying, what difference does it make? We live on a spiritual plane way up here and the body doesn't matter anymore. So why should we worry about that? Others are reacting to prostitution in what you might call the opposite extreme. They're suggesting that since sexual promiscuity is so rampant, you just shouldn't have any relationships with the opposite sex at all. So never get married, be celibate for all your life. As a matter of fact, there's one more problem we want to tell you about, young seminarian, and it's this. The people are really out of control in terms of worship. Um, There's all kinds of people speaking out, out of turn. Tongues, which we're not condemning by any means, are just out of control. Prophecies are out of control. Nobody knows what end is up. And we'd like to take uh, this opportunity to offer you your first church. I would say no. Right? And most young seminarians would say no. Or, or we might say, who was the former pastor at that place? You know what the answer to that question would be? The Apostle Paul. He started the church. We want you to be its pastor. Well, so there's the church. In summary, it had its problems. The church also had multiple letters written to it, probably more letters written to this church than any other church, and and some of those letters are lost, and we've never seen them. We have on record 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and we're not sure if maybe one of the lost letters is sort of embedded in 2nd Corinthians. We're not sure. All we know is Paul refers to other times where he sent letters to them. And we don't have them in hand. So our phone conversation is rather one-sided. And that's about as good as we can do. So how in the world is this whole thing supposed to be summarized in one sermon? Very poorly. And here's the way I'm going to do it. The first main issue that I'll use that emerges from the Corinthian church is, is this. You're gifted my friends, at Corinth, but you're self-centered. You are enormously gifted, but you're self-centered. Paul actually says at the beginning, there's no gift that's lacking among you. In other words, you have it all. You've got prophecy, you've got tongues, you've got wisdom. The list goes on and on. It's all right there at your disposal. It's, It's your church, it's you. You're incredibly gifted, but you're very self-serving. Your giftedness is directed towards your own benefit and gain. If you just take a look at your worship services, says Paul, you're out of order. You have begun to focus on self-expression in your worship. Let me put it differently. Your worship has become all about you. 
You think you have a prophecy. You think you have a revelation. You think you have a word from God. You want to speak in tongues. You want to do this. You want to do that. Nobody tells you what's right and what's not, what's appropriate and what's not. The only measure of appropriateness you have among you is self. And so you speak out and you're out of order. As a matter of fact, this self-centeredness is also demonstrated in your divisions. It's clear that you have ideas and you're very independent in your thinking. And you've chosen this particular philosophy or this particular theology or this particular leader. And your church is divided. What is that except from self-centered pride? It's about your ideas. It's not about the unity of the church. There's this interesting just little suggestion that, again, this one-sided phone conversation gives us. And I'd love to know more, but we just don't know much. We hear in a section where Paul is talking about the Lord's Supper, he says, you people are so self-centered that when you get together for the Lord's Supper, and by the way, at that point, the Lord's Supper was probably more of a fellowship feast where there was lots of eating and drinking and not just the bread and the juice that we associate with the Lord's Supper. He said, when you get together, one of you rushes ahead and doesn't wait for the other. As a matter of fact, some of you are virtually drunk. And some of you are actually hungry. Do you see the contrast, says Paul? All you're thinking about is yourself. Stop it. This is about the unity of the body of Christ. You're gifted, but you're self-centered. Also, your gifts have gone to your head. As a matter of fact, you really do understand some things that are important. One of the things you understand, at least some of you, is that meat that's sacrificed to idols is sacrificed to no one, to no God. So you don't need to worry about when you go to the open market and pick up meat, whether or not it's been sacrificed to idols. God is the God of all creation, and He's pronounced it good. And you can, in good conscience, pick up that meat and eat it, even if it has been sacrificed to idols. And you know that. Bravo. You get it. You're wise. But here's the problem. You're still self-centered. With your wisdom and your knowledge concerning this issue, which I applaud you for, you've used it to offend your brothers. You've actually embraced something that's true and you've not used it in love. You've embraced the truth and you've said, I really don't care whether or not people understand this or not. If it offends them, it's their fault, not mine. Paul says, my friends, this truth that we're talking about, I affirm that meat sacrifice to idols is no big deal. But if it offends your brother, if it leads your brother whose conscience is still seared over this issue, if it leads him to sin, is that a good thing? Is that a demonstration of you exercising your gift of wisdom and love? I think not. As a matter of fact, he says, I'll be so bold as to say, if my brother is offended by eat that meat that might have been sacrificed to idols, I won't eat meat again. I'll be a vegetarian. That's how important love for the other is and unity in the church. You're wise, 
It's one of your gifts, but you're self-centered. The second thing, again, an overview of the church at Corinth. He says, my friends, you're spiritual, but you're also very sinful. As a matter of fact, um, these people had inherited the good news concerning Jesus Christ, and it had transformed them. They were from an excessive pagan culture. And for the most part, the people that he's writing to are Gentiles. In other words, they've been delivered from a, a really high kind of paganism and inherited the good news concerning Jesus Christ. And it's been a gigantic transformation. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 18, when we encounter the church at Corinth, it's that famous place where Paul speaks to the Jews who happened to also be in Corinth. He was being abused by them. He was trying to do as he always did, teach in the synagogue first and speak concerning Moses and the law and introduce Jesus Christ as the good news. And he had such resistance among the people in that Jewish synagogue that he said, forget it, I'm done with you. I'm wiping my hands clean. I'm shaking the dust off my feet. I'm shaking it out of my garments. I'm letting go of you and I'm going to the Gentiles. Remember that? This was the place where he makes that pronouncement. So basically, he invests his time in this Gentile population who is immersed in the culture that I just mentioned, the temple of Aphrodite, the excessive amount of wealth, the self-centeredness and the independent way of thinking. All those things were a part of their culture. And he introduces them to Jesus, the suffering servant, the Savior of all people, the one who can give you deliverance from sin. Paul says, in effect, you've inherited a great spiritual heritage. You're spiritual people. You understand reality from a different vantage point now. But you've gone astray in your spirituality. You've gotten to the place that you think that spirituality eclipses everything else. You've gotten to the place that you actually think spirituality eclipses morality and that morals are obsolete because in effect, you say, everything's permissible. The body doesn't matter. Paul says you've overemphasized the idea of spirit and underemphasized the idea of morality in the body. In other words, you've become exalted in your spirituality and you've become sinful in your idolatry. As a matter of fact, if uh, you were to investigate this kind of thinking, you'd find it wasn't just Corinthian kind of thinking. It's ancient Greek philosophy. It's everywhere that, in fact, the body is not that important. As a matter of fact, some people would suggest that the body is is all sinful because it's material and the only thing that matters is the spiritual. So in some form they had bought into this and they'd said, there's no need to worry about the body. There's no need to worry about traditional morals. We live in the spirit. What difference does it make? You know, that kind of uh, thinking, which was rampant among the Corinthians, can create at least two different extremes. The one extreme it could create is a sort of harsh asceticism, right? 
where you just beat up the body because it's so evil, you don't want anything to do with it, and you're, you're self-abusive. Or you could actually, in this sort of philosophical asceticism, begin to think that things of the body are not good. They're secondary, of secondary importance, as a matter of fact. They're probably so laced with material evil that you just push your way through them these body things, so that you can get onto the spiritual. Um, I always hesitate to uh, mention other thinkers, theologians or philosophers, because in a congregation like this, there's any number of you who are experts on anybody I speak about. But I think it's probably safe to say that Corinth wasn't the only group of Christians that had this problem. I'm talking about the severe reaction that we call asceticism. One of my favorite all-time theologians is St. Augustine. But I think St. Augustine actually struggled with this. He had a notion of spirituality that seemed like it eclipsed the body. (laughs) Such that, for instance, with Augustine, he would say concerning human sexuality, husband and wife, just get on with it. Do it quickly and have your kids. Because if you're involved in sexual activity in such a way that actually is delightful and sexually edifying, you're moving in the wrong direction. You shouldn't be experiencing ecstasy in sexuality. That's of the lower order. Just have babies and get on with it. You can't love like that. Now that's a hideous oversimplification of Augustine, but to a certain extent, I think that's correct. There's other people like that in the history of the church, right? They've actually beaten their bodies. They've done severe things to try to keep their body in check. That's one reaction to this high-minded notion of spirituality. Of course, the other reaction to a high-minded notion of spirituality is that it doesn't matter. The body's for ecstasy anyway. Spirituality can be found through the body, and it could take you to levels that you couldn't imagine. So why not have sex with as many people as possible? Because the body doesn't matter anyway. It's the spirit that matters. Find your ecstasy however you can. You see, Paul says you're deeply spiritual. You're thinking spiritual ideas, but you're also ridiculously sinful. You're all mixed up. The third thing I think Paul says in this letter to first and to a lesser extent, second Corinthians, you're wise, but you're foolish. You're wise people. You know your culture around you. You know ideas. But if you're so wise, why is it that you're unable to even get along? If you're so wise, why are there huge divisions in the church? If you're so wise, why haven't you realized this? It's a question. Is Christ divided? Obviously, the answer is no. Then how can Christ's body be divided? 
If you're so wise, why are you so independent in your thinking and at any given moment ready to split off from everybody else because you don't agree with so-and-so or such-and-such? Really? You call that wisdom? You are wise in spiritual things. I'll give you that. You're very gifted, but you're terribly foolish. How can you call wisdom going to court with your brother and sister and defaming the name of Jesus Christ in the courtroom of secular judges? How can you do that and call yourself wise? You're foolish. If you're truly in Christ, you ought to be able to resolve your differences between one another. The courtroom should not be necessary. You're wise, but you're also foolish. You're wise about spiritual things. As a matter of fact, on one occasion, he says, you have everything you need. You've got it all. You have to wonder in that language if he's kind of mocking them. Or maybe he's doing both. He's mocking them and saying, you think you have it all? And he's not mocking them. And he's saying, you actually do have it all. I already told you you're very gifted. You've got a lot of wisdom concerning spirituality. But if you really are wise, why are you celebrating incest among you? You call that wisdom, says Paul? You're foolish. Your super spirituality has gotten you nowhere. Your super wisdom is actually foolishness. That's why I think he starts out at the very beginning in the passage it was just read, contrasting the wisdom of the world to the wisdom of God and primarily speaking about the foolishness of the cross. The cross was foolish to a Greek because a God would never descend in that way. It was foolishness to the Jew because God was never going to be crucified, not like the Messiah. Paul says there's foolishness all around when it comes to the wisdom of God. And what I want to tell you is that foolishness that you hear named as foolishness is the very wisdom of God and is wiser than the wisdom of the world. And you, my friends, he says, have forgotten that wisdom. And you've become foolish. So if that's an overview of some of the issues in Corinth, really three main points touch points what's the corrective here's the corrective love that's why we read first corinthians chapter 13 love it trumps everything let me read you um, those words again that you could quote them probably yourself Love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. You're good at prophecy. It's going away. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. You speak in tongues. That's nothing. It's going to vanish. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. You have lots of knowledge. But I tell you, your knowledge is absolutely incomplete. For we know in part and prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Anyone who has studied anything for any length of time realizes how much more there is to learn. 
And when you achieve a level of knowledge, you understand your incompleteness in terms of that knowledge. And Paul is saying, don't fool yourself. Knowledge is passing away because it's incomplete. You're just reaching for something as high as you can. And I applaud that. But that's going to pass away. It will not be necessary anymore. Nor will prophecies be necessary. Nor will tongues be necessary. And all these things are the things you're good at. But I'll tell you what will remain. The poem that Paul gives us puts it this way. Now these three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Put it another way. What good is your wisdom without love? What good is your knowledge without love? What good is your prophecy without love? What good is your tongues without love? It's worthless. It's like paper that could be burned in a fire. The power of all those gifts, said Paul, which you lack none of, the power of all those gifts is found through the prism of love. Through not self-centeredness, but divine love. The kind of self-giving love that was identified in Jesus Christ. And you don't get that. You know, we just uh, had Valentine's Day Saturday, right? What good would your gift be, whatever it was, if it wasn't coming from love? That'd be be worthless. Is Valentine's Day about the gift? No. No. It's the gift that expresses the love. It's just an illustration that we've experienced yesterday. Give your wife a dozen roses or whatever she wants. I'm just talking as a guy now. (laughs) And you don't give her your love, she might as well throw them in the trash. They're meaningless, right? So says Paul, of all their wisdom... And all their gifts, it's nothing without love. That's a corrective. The second corrective Paul gives is in a word, holiness. He says in one place to the church at Corinth, Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Um, You may have been in some beautiful sanctuaries besides ours. I think ours is gorgeous, but... um, especially some of the ornate sanctuaries that you may have experienced, whether St. Patrick's or one uh, in Europe, and and I've seen a lot of those. There's a sense of awe when you enter them, right? It's not like entering your your living room. Much as you might like your living room, there's something special about a sanctuary, a place of Christian worship. Paul says your body is a sanctuary. Using his image from his Jewish background, it's a temple. A temple where the Holy Spirit resides. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God. 
As a matter of fact, you're not even your own. You've been bought with a price, like a precious gift off a shelf that's priceless. Christ bought you with His blood. And you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. So with your body, says Paul, honor God. Don't diminish the body. Don't pretend like it's unimportant. And don't beat it up. Don't be an ascetic. Take that body and use it like a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's the summary of holiness, isn't it? To use your body, your mind, your body, everything about you as a temple of the Holy Spirit. So the corrective is love. The corrective is holiness, and the corrective is the resurrection. Paul says, unlike every other worldly, secular philosophy you've heard, this thing called the resurrection of Jesus Christ is qualitatively different. As a matter of fact, the resurrection of Jesus Christ brings the body and the soul together in such a beautiful unity that you can't even hardly express it. Some of them had gotten frustrated with the whole idea of the resurrection and said it wasn't going to exist anyway. And Paul said, are you kidding me? (laughs) Don't go there. If you go there, you've got nothing. Without the resurrection, this gospel that it preaches foolishness. I'm not wasting my time. Unless the resurrection is at the center of it all. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, which means so many things. So many things that the world does not say. It means redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. It means that even though, as we talked about in Romans last week, even though you were dead in your trespasses and your sins, you've been made alive in Christ. How have you been made alive in Christ? Not by divine fiat, not because he said, I want that one to be holy now, but because Christ himself took on your sin. Or to put it in the words of 2 Corinthians, God made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. You understand, says Paul, the power and the importance of the resurrection. The resurrection means that those bodies that you have, well, they're not complete. We get that. We know they're going to waste away. We get that. But they're treasures They're treasures for the Holy Spirit to dwell in. And those bodies someday, you'll never understand it, but they will be raised. What is mortal is going to put on immortality. And we will be raised. Resurrected bodies. We believe just like Jesus. Paul says that's the corrective for all your foolish ideas. For all your bad thinking. And it's only the beginning of discovering the wisdom of God. He puts it this way on one occasion in a flurry. A flurry when he was talking about the body. And he was talking about doing ministry, especially among the Corinthians. And he says, we've really been kind of beat up, you know, us apostles. And then he goes on to put it in these words. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Isn't that a wonderful image? 
as treasures in jars of clay. Though outwardly, our bodies, though outwardly they're wasting away, yet inwardly they're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. We fix our eyes on Jesus, as the writer of the book of Hebrews might say, the author and perfecter of our faith. When you just get a little too hoity-toity with your own wisdom, says Paul, Remember the wisdom of the cross and live like Jesus. When you get out of focus concerning the body, remember it was that body that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, chose to enter in order to defeat sin and death so that we can be raised. When you get out of control in terms of self-centeredness, oh, don't we? Remembering the suffering servant, Jesus who was the epitome of divine love, who always put the other first. Remember Christ and Him crucified and live according to that. And then you'll experience freedom. That's what I've called you to. Follow me. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for uh, the wisdom of the cross. We also thank you for the incompleteness of our wisdom here on this earth and our inability to completely understand the wisdom of the cross. It seems that every time we get to the place that we think we thoroughly understand, uh, we have propelled ourselves precipitously towards pride. And pride, as we know, inevitably leads to a fall. So, Lord, keep us uh, focused on the wisdom of God in the cross and help us to live that wisdom of God in the cross. May we be earthly-minded insofar as you've created these bodies for your glory. But may we be heavenly-minded insofar as we remember that these bodies which will decay will again be glorified to live with you. We thank you, Lord, for eternal life. And we pray that that eternal life that we know in our hearts will be lived by us through faith. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.